Hey, everybody, you're listening to WRBH Radio 88.3 FM. This is your host of Dinner Party, Chef Amy Sins. And here, live on Zoom audio with me, I have my friend, Chef Susan Reed. And she is with King Arthur Flower. And y'all, she is the senior recipe tester, but she is my forever phone a friend and uh, is like a walking uh, human food encyclopedia. And I ask her questions about everything from wood fire grilling to cookies and rolls. So <laughs> I love, I love Susan that you are able to join us today. Um, I won't, I won't ask you too many questions about building a, a wood powered oven. Uh, we'll try to stay focused on holiday baking, but thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, it's always great to be with you, Amy. Now, you know, when I, I reached out to you and I said, okay, you're my phone a friend. I, I need to make rolls for Christmas, but I only have time this week. You know, what can I make? And within a few minutes, you said, these are perfect, par bake them. You know, here's the recipe from King Arthur, go. And it really got me thinking what things we can start making this week so that when we're in the whole rush and the chaos of Christmas week, we can pull it out the freezer or, uh, you know, out the refrigerator and it's, it's ready to roll. Yeah, this is the week where you're um, probably going to have a bunch of cookie exchanges and things like that going on. And it's almost too late, actually, to mail Christmas cookies. If you really get on it, you might be able to do that now. But I've been in full-on production mode. Where my kitchen is just completely covered with things everywhere. I bake for the local food shelf. So there's 25 kids backpacks where they take food home for the weekend. So every week I, I make bread for all the families and then I do little boxes of treats. So Christmas cookies are going in the treat boxes. So I have 25 of them laid out all over the place. <laughs> I have, we also bake for a local church who does a cookie exchange. So I committed to 30 dozen cookies for that. So it's, I'm in half sheet pan mode and there are eggs and chocolate and nuts and things everywhere in my kitchen. <laughs> well, so if you're making 30 different cookies and, you know, I imagine that the average home. Oh, no, 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 not many. It's just volume. I've got three different. Oh, okay. I was like, oh my God, she's making 30 different recipes. This is going to take her forever. <laughs> well, that's not inconceivable, but no, I'm, I'm more in a volume production thing. And if you were up against like a cookie exchange where there's going to be a bunch of people and you need to like show up with a bunch of product, I recommend doing things that are bar cookies. And I also, um, the magical formula, most bar cookies are written for a nine by 13 pan. And if you want a half sheet pan size, which is, it's all about capacity, <laughs> right? Um, to convert a bar cookie from a nine by 13 to a half sheet pan, which is a 18 by, I forget what is it? 18 by 13. Um, you wanna multiply your base recipe by 1.5. That is helpful. That's a good Now, thing. if we're multiplying that base recipe by 1.5, are mm -hmm. there certain things that just don't 
double or multiply well, or are we going to get the well, same results? If your base recipe calls for something like one egg, then it's kind of a pain because then you have to figure out one and a half eggs. So nobody really wants to go there. But what I often do is we have an amazing fudge brownie recipe on our website. So I make that fudge brownie 1.5 and that one converts really easily. So that could, it goes from four eggs to six eggs. So that one scales up really nicely. And what I do is put half the batter in the pan and then I buy the giant party pack of York peppermint patties and I sit there watching television, peeling them all until they're naked. And then it takes 63 peppermint patties to cover the top, cover the cheat pan. And then I put the second half of the batter on top and I bake that for 24 minutes. And then I pull it out and I put crushed candy canes on the top for two more minutes. And then you have Christmas brownies and it's, and I just cut them into one inch squares for this church thing. And I got 90 brownies out of one half sheet. Pan. Oh, that's awesome. And I love the idea of the peppermint patties because who doesn't love chocolate and mint all together and, and then ooey gooey yeah. brownie deliciousness. <laughs> they look really pretty. They taste amazing. They don't take that much time and you get a boatload of them out of one half sheet pan. I love that. And, you know, I'm, I'm starting to think and I, I look back on all the holidays that we've had and how many recipes that, you know, you print out maybe a couple of weeks before and you start looking and you go, OK, I'm going to make this fudge. I'm going to make this cookie. I'm going to make this cake. And um, without a doubt, and this happens every year. Uh, my mother-in-law and I will, will find a newspaper article or a magazine or watch a TV show. And the day before Christmas or the day before Thanksgiving, we're like, oh, let's try it. And then you realize you have bit off more than you can chew. It's too much to tackle. When should we as home cooks say, this is my drop dead date. I'm not baking anything new or different after this day. And... <laughs> <laughs> and I know that's a hard one, but also how many things should we realistically try to tackle for? Yeah, baking? that is a hard question. Like I have a really big family, like my immediate family is close to 30 people. And I have a lot of, there are certain things that I am expected to show up with. So I don't have a lot of bandwidth for going off to experiment. I mean, I, I test things all year, so I'm always doing things like that. And I invented one of the um, cookies for the King Arthur cookie campaign that's on going on right now. But I we wanted to do something different about rum balls. So I took Biscoff cookies and I ground them up and I put eggnog cream cheese filling in the middle of them. So things like that, that anything with booze in it, you can make in advance. And I think you should really cut yourself off by the weekend before Christmas, because what else have you not done, right? Do you have the things wrapped? Do you, have, do you want to be able to like sit down and actually talk to people? Or do you want to be like tearing around the kitchen, um, destroying it and then going, people are coming. I have to clean this thing now. And, it, you know, I am guilty as anybody of trying to do too much all the time, but I have three main cookies that I have to show up with. I have to make um, the Christmas brownies. I have to make these hermit bars and there's an extortion story behind them. I don't know if we'll have time for that. Um, and I, <laughs> we, we have a cream cheese rollout cookie on our website that makes amazing Linzers. 
So it's a really easy dough to work with. Um, if you want to do cutout cookies or decorated cookies, you can do those now and you don't have to do them all at once. That's another thing that people with decorated cookies, you don't start with mixing dough and hope to have a finished decorated cookie on the same day. That is a big problem. Ah, that's good to know because, you know, we pull all our stuff out, we get our me's and we're excited about those cookies, but yeah. they've got a yeah. cool. So any rollout cookie, make the dough, put it on sheets of parchment, flatten it while it's still soft, stack up a half sheet pan with as much cookie dough as you need, throw it in the fridge. Done for that day. No more. Cut off. Done. Next day, bang them out, bake them all, put them in an air, put them in a fish tub. You know what a fish tub is. For other people, that would be like a large Tupperware container. Day two, done. Okay. And then the last day, that's your decorating day. So you really need to explode that prep over several days. I mean, you could make your dough Thanksgiving weekend, a week and a half later, decide to bake all your shapes, put them back away. They're all butter cookies. They're better when they're a little bit aged anyway. And then decorate them, you know, a little bit closer while the eggnog is out. <laughs> but, you know, that makes sense. And I think one of the things uh, we always are wondering is, you know, what can sit at room temperature? What has to go in the fridge? How long is it going to last? And if I want to get the maximum longevity, yeah. what am I storing it in? And yeah. we, you know, you start looking at things like rum cake or you start looking at bread pudding and then everyone starts getting nervous about what they yeah. can make and where it needs to live. Yeah, well, something like bread pudding is relatively easy. I mean, you could make the whole thing and then throw it in a container and freeze that and then thaw it the day before. Anything that's got an egg or a custard base, um, once it's mixed with sugar and spices and all that other stuff, I do my pumpkin pie filling three weeks before Thanksgiving and throw it in the freezer. And it's a hundred times better because the spices have had time to hang out with the mixture. So bread pudding would be something I would put in the freezer pull out the day before you wanted to do it, thaw it in the fridge overnight, and then you're ready to bake and, and go. Um, and that is a better way to do that rather than like making the whole thing and freezing it because it's gonna get dry and icky and it's not gonna be as good. So anything that was an egg or a custard base is gonna need some fridge time, that's important. Things like baked butter cookies don't need to be frozen if you've got a good airtight storage container those mellow pretty nicely at room temperature. Uh, I make stolen every year and I soak the fruit for weeks in advance in a bunch of you know rum and brandy. And those get sealed in butter and then jam and then more sugar. And they're almost not good to eat unless they have been aging somewhere for a couple of weeks. So most, there are a lot of traditional Christmas foods that, um, almost need to be like, if you're not thinking about it on Thanksgiving weekend, you're almost too late. <laughs> so um, y'all, if you're listening to this, you're too late, but it, you can pick up your face and make it happen. <laughs> well, I, I have to admit like every year, um, like in January, that's when I go cruising shopping for the next year. That's when you go buy things like Christmas cards or, or square cookie tins. I'm a big fan of square cookie tins because they ship better and they they handle things better 
Um, yeah, but that's when I go make sure that I stock up for the next year when everything is half price. So I have a, I have a bunch of metal cookie tens and then I have a bunch of plastic cookie tens. And part of me wonders if one is more superior to the other or if they're pretty much equal. I would say for carrying around locally, plastic is fine. If you're going to ship it somewhere, I think metal is going to be a little tighter seal. Um, I have lots and lots of square, like cube-like um, metal cookie tins that I either get, sometimes I get them at the dollar store. I've there, I got like four dozen of them for 50 cents a piece at Walmart last January, you know, and this, I have the storage space. So that part is easy, but yeah, I have the stash. So, well, so, you know, for my listeners out there, I was also doing my phone a friend to Susan over the Thanksgiving holidays because my little nephew wanted to make pancakes and he started making pancakes with my father-in-law and they're mixing and they're not paying attention. And my father-in-law goes to cook the first pancake and he says, well, this is runny. It doesn't look right. Add one more cup of flour. Maybe you measured wrong. Well, we found out whenever I walked into the kitchen and it smelled like toasted marshmallows that instead of using flour, uh, my nephew had added powdered sugar. And so we were really just mixing together powdered sugar and egg and milk and vanilla is what they had mixed together. And it turned into an adventure of how can we save this or what should we do with it? And my question for you, Susan, is there a point where we just say it can't be saved? We need to, to move on and start over or do we try to save it all? <laughs> the the issue with that was that the proportions were a little bit out of whack because there was such a high percentage of sugar in that formula between the milk. I mean, it was would have made an incredibly sweet crepe. And I think I ended up telling you to make a clafouti about it with it, right? Or something like that. Which yeah. Basically turning it into like a sweetened custard and put some fruit in it and throw it in the oven. And, you know, no bad things can happen after that. There are some things that, oh, this happens a lot. We get these phone calls all the time around this time of year where um, the husband gets sent to the store to go get flour and they pick up and, the the wives are very specific that it has to be King Arthur and the guys reach for the blue one instead of the red one. And the blue one is bread flour and the red one is all purpose flour. And now what do I do? How do I make cookies with this bread flour stuff? So we get those kinds of questions a, a fair amount of the time. Some cookies are fine with bread flour. Some can be like, you can double it and then alter what else you add. You know, you could do some like cornstarch and AP and then it will all balance out in the long run. So sometimes you can save it by doubling it and correcting your mistake. A lot of times people like reach for the wrong measuring spoon and they put like a tablespoon of something in there when it should be a teaspoon. You can usually get around that by doubling but leaving out the thing you put too much of in the first place in the second batch so some things are savable some things aren't um and we'll go farther to help you save something the more expensive it is we'll right you put in it you got eight dollars worth of nuts in there we're going to figure out a way to save this <laughs> if, you know if it's 50 cents worth of flour you know that's 
you can it will probably be less aggravation to just let it go and start again <laughs> so you have to choose your battles I think your point about the flower and grabbing the wrong flower, you know, whether they, they got bread flower, all purpose, self rising, um, you know, any yeah. of those that they grab off the shelf and for bakers at home who maybe are only familiar with all purpose flour, what's the difference in these flowers? The thing that's, that's actually a really good question. Um, Flowers have different amounts of protein in them, and the amount of protein in the flour determines the texture of your final baked good. So in the South, for the most part, um, what grows best down there is a lower protein flour, like a white lily, that is often used for biscuits. And that's why biscuits are usually considered the bread of the South, because that's the thing that grows best there. And that flour being lower protein makes something that's tender and can be really fluffy. It can make good cakes. Um, you can sort of sneak it into some cookies, but they're gonna be really um, short or crumbly. They're not gonna hold together as well. All purpose has a little bit more flour and it's kind of in the sweet spot in the middle where it can do most anything. Um, if you're can't quite decide where to go. All purpose is the thing that most people have in their kitchens and that is the thing that can do the most things. And then bread flour is even higher protein, which means it gives more structure to the bread. And bread flour is often used in combination with lower protein flours. So if you wanted to make like an oatmeal bread, oatmeal doesn't have a lot of gluten or structure in it to help the bread rise. So a combination of oats and bread flour is a good combination. You'll get to the point where like a regular all-purpose loaf would get. So, and there are even more uh, intense flours, like um, there's a high gluten flour that makes a really chewy, like um, bagels, or you can, some people like it for pizza crust, but there's a big long range of flours and what they're best for. Now, with that whole big long range and with people trying to adapt um, sweets and desserts for different diets, mm. is it possible to, I know you all have a, a, um, a gluten-free mm -hmm. blend. Yep. It, is it possible to, do you just swap it in any recipe or are there only certain things that it works? Uh, our champion and the closest the the thing that is most useful to most people is this blend called measure for measure which you can take any recipe that you might have grown up with or your grandmother used to make uh if it's a cookie or a cake um measure for measure is like perfect a muffin scones anything like that you don't have to think twice just go reach for that instead of all-purpose flour it will work for for some yeast breads, like if you wanted to make um, a flatbread or a focaccia, measure for measure would do fine. I don't think measure for measure will help you get a big, airy, open crumb artisan loaf. It's It doesn't have enough architecture to be able to handle that. But I would say for about 70% of what you're most likely to want to bake, measure for measure is where you want to go. It's awesome. got a little bit of xanthan gum in it that helps to replace some of the architecture that the gluten would have given you in the flour. It is really amazing stuff. 
I, I have some, and uh, we've played with it a little bit, but I uh, I always go for the, you know, I go for the 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 lo fully loaded, right? But um, so many people can't, and it's really cool to know that you have an alternative, especially if you're baking for other people. Yeah, and you yeah. know you can ad adapt your recipe accordingly. And if you really want to get bulletproof, the gluten-free mixes that we sell, then you really don't have to worry about it. You, you don't have to measure, you don't have to do anything, you just like go. Like our brownie recipe, we have a gluten-free brownie mix. I know a lot of people that aren't celiac and that's the only brownie that they will eat. They like Because they love it. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, but chocolate, if you're in the gluten-free land or if you're, you're trying to bake something that's gluten-free for someone and you're unfamiliar with that territory, I would encourage you to test chocolate recipes because the cocoa in those recipes helps with the structure. And um, a gluten-free chocolate cake is likely to be more like the cake you're expecting than a gluten-free yellow cake. Because ah, you're not depending as much on the, the substitute flour. I had someone ask me in the locker room of the swimming pool the other day, like, Oh yeah, you know that shortbread that you made up that was really good that had the cacao nibs in it? Like, yeah. She goes, oh yeah, I made it, but I just decided to substitute all almond flour and it didn't work. I'm like, well, duh. <laughs> so, you know, it's like, if you're gonna try something that is outside the box like that, take a baby step, right? Why don't you try like a third almond flour and see how it goes? Don't just throw the thing out and and put 100% of something completely different in it and hope that it's going to work. Right. And, and then be perplexed by that. <laughs> and that's why you test recipes. And, you know, I, what I love is that every recipe you send me, it works. And so many times, um, you know, I, for y'all out there, I was, I was making a recipe and uh, Susan sent me a text that said, uh, beware the internet recipe. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so true because some of them are not tested. Some of them have been kind of swiped from other sites, adapted, never tested, but somehow they have a gorgeous picture and it looks like it works. And then you, you make it and you're like, I'm a terrible cook. This is awful, but it's not always your fault. No, it's not. And the same thing goes for cookbooks. I mean, I think a lot of people get very, um, they get sucked in by the photography and, you know, they saw this person on Instagram and, oh, well, they have like hundreds of thousands of followers on Instagram and then people on their blog all love this. And I I've tried to explain to someone, do you ever actually read those comments? How many of those people that say, oh, you're wonderful. This is beautiful. Actually bake the thing. Guess what? None of them did. They didn't bake the thing. They just said, oh, you're wonderful. That looks great. So it's very easy to abandon all critical thinking <laughs> until you've been burned a few times. <laughs> and once that happens, you're like, oh, okay, perhaps. And for cookbooks, like if you are looking for a cookbook for a gift or for yourself or anything, and you like the look of it, and you like the pictures and this sounds really good. I would encourage you to do a little bit of vetting for yourself and for the sake of your wallet, look in the front and see if they will tell you how much a cup of flour weighs in that book. 
if they can't tell you, that means they don't know. And it also means that probably nothing in that book was tested. It's the single most important piece of information. Not everybody measures flour the same way, but if they can't tell you how they did it, that is a big red flag. And the the flour is going to weigh differently. Like if we're here in Louisiana and it's super humid and that flour has been sitting on the counter yeah. versus if I'm in Colorado or somewhere. Oh, my God. Yes. And well, then you have altitude as part of the equation there, too. So not only is the air there incredibly dry, but it's even drier the higher up you go. And then your leaveners are all turbocharged because they have less air pressure to work against and so on and so forth. But if you're not working by weight, like some people think that a cup of flour weighs five ounces at King Arthur, ours is four and a quarter or 120 grams. And that's done by stirring up the flour, sprinkling it in a measuring cup, and then sweeping it off the top. And that is how we test and our weight, we have a weight chart on our recipe site that tells you how much everything that you could be baking with weighs in both ounces and grams. So um, if you bookmark that, it will save you a lot of aggravation. Because if somebody weighs their flour differently, that's fine, as long as they'll tell you what that is. So it's consistent throughout the book and you know that you're having a consistent outcome. Absolutely. Yeah. As long as the proportions are consistent, then you're gonna be okay. It's where you pay, take something off the internet that gives you no weight at all. That's another big red flag, right? You're, you're looking at something on the internet that says three cups of this, and this, but there, no weights anywhere to be found. That's, there's no good can come of that. You might get lucky. So what I'm also hearing is that if you haven't already uh, stocked your kitchen with a scale, mm -hmm. you need a kitchen scale. It's probably the best $30 you will ever spend as far as making you faster. Um, you will save $30 in dish detergent because you will have way fewer dishes to do. Um, because you're not making all these measuring implements dirty, especially sticky things. Like it's much easier to weigh things like peanut butter or shortening or honey or molasses. Uh, you know, that just make, it makes a tremendous mess. And I would say that once you start playing with the scale, another big hint that's important, when you are measuring things into your bowl, say you've got a bunch of dry ingredients for a cookie. So you're going to have flour in the bowl and you're going to have salt and baking soda and maybe baking powder. Put all of those things in a separate pile in the bowl. The worst thing you can do is put it all on top of each other. And then, you know, the phone rings and the dog has to go out <laughs> or whatever. And you come back and you look at this pile and you're like, ah, what's in there? I don't know. <laughs> and I try to do a check mark on my recipe too, so I can keep track of it. But I, you know, all these are incredible tips and, you know, I'm excited to get ready for holiday baking, even though I'm a little behind the curb, but, um, I'm going to pull it out. I promise. Um, and I think, life, man. <laughs> and I think all of our listeners will too, but it would be helpful for them to know where they can find you, how they can um, learn more and where they can get some of the best recipes. 
So kingarthurbaking.com and on Instagram, I give uh, classes on all kinds of different recipes on my, um, they're on my stories archive. And that is Chef Susan in VT for Vermont. And uh, I have a whole bunch of people in, that ask me questions on there and I'm always happy to answer. So that's a good place to find me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. For my listeners out there, we had Chef Susan Reed with King Arthur Flower. And you have been listening to WRBH Radio 88.3 FM. This is your host of Dinner Party, Chef Amy Sins. Until next time, ciao.